Swords Without Masters seems to have been a very difficult project to get to some kind of conclusion. Is it one of those things where you kind of, it was mostly about your problems with the game? Or were there some structural things or what? So, okay, so the precursor, Monkey Dome, that was created, uh, there was about, oh, there's I think five of us, and we were making the game up as we were playing it. And there was absolute magic at that table while we were playing it. It was, it was one of my favorite gaming experiences and really infected me. I really enjoyed it. And then I think why it took so long, like Monkey Dome just came out and that was it. It was it was made whole within a week. And the reason why Swords took so much longer, I mean, Swords has more to it, but just finding the way to convey that magic that made the game in the first place, I struggled for the voice of that text over and over and over again. And I don't think it's coincidence that I, you know, started publishing my sword and sorcery fiction and then put the game out, that that was a step that needed to happen. The current version of Swords, like the game itself is done, but I eventually do want to put a whole book together that comes at it from different angles. Writing rules text is, you know, it's an instruction manual, it's a reference book, and it's also got to be fiction. It's got to, it's got to inspire and uh, finding that balance is one of the more exciting challenges. I had this problem with early playtests, particularly during the perilous phase, people would fall back on treating it as if they were whittling away their opponent's hit points. So they would be like, they would roll the dice and be like, all right, I take a swing at them. That was definitely a thing that I needed to like really, oh man, I don't know. I don't think I invoke pro wrestling in it, but... um, (laughs) A lot of what happens in pro wrestling is what I want to kind of capture here, where you spend a lot of time making your opponent look really great so that uh, when you finally overcome them, it's more glorious than if you spent your whole time just beating that, beating them down or wiping them out. The game says, yeah, if you want to just wipe them out, just wipe them out. I wanted to make sure that no one person uh, had complete control and no one person had all of the responsibility for the narrative. So in each phase, I guess the way to think about it is more of a uh, dialogue, right? So in the rogues phase where you it feels like you have the most narrative control, you're still constrained by this demand that, that's been given to you, right? Each phase has... A call and response going on to it. So it's basically only yeah. the discovery phase where you're kind of self-directed, right? Yeah. So as you said, rogues phase, you got a demand made of you. And I think I think what's interesting with the rogues phase is that sometimes with freeform games, it, like, it can derail the story a little bit when someone makes a demand which they're very interested in and the other player is like, well, I don't know right. even what to think of that. So whereas in the perilous phase, it's clear what the peril is. And in the discovery phase, you're usually there because you don't know what's going on, right? Like people have questions. But then in the rogues phase, you kind of got this situation where any of the players can come at any of the other players, which is great because you know that that player is interested in whatever they've asked, but you're you're seeing a vision of the character you're playing uh, through the questions of another player. Yeah, so there's that was actually that little bit there where I had some concerns that I wanted to make sure that I I was careful with when it came to dealing with other characters, other players' characters, right? Because the danger here is that if you have narrative control, or even if you if you're just making a demand, 
it's easy. If somebody sees their character as like a very Conan like character, it would be really easy to tear that down by show us how you snivel around like a little coward, you know? I, I think with more experienced players, I think I think that's actually okay, right? Because right. it's like, what would it take for your character to be the complete opposite of what they normally are? Yeah. Right? yeah. But it's like, well, you know, for my Conan character to be a sniveling wreck, he would have to be enchanted by his arch enemy, the, you know, the sorceress or something. You know, that's the only way that could possibly be conceivable. So... The affordances and constraints at the beginning of the, the the text there kind of get into no one may tell you what your rogue is thinking or feeling. So yeah. you can tell us how you crawl around like a sniveling coward. Cannot say that you are a sniveling yeah, coward. Exactly. Right? You're allowed to lean into that if you want. Sometimes I think I've had to insist on people saying, show, show us. Right. Right. Because because that's the key thing. Really. Yes. Is is always show, and I I can't remember which of the the mini games. Oh, I, I think it's um, Sorceress Bloody Sorceress, where it, where it's like tell us, right? You know, and right. to encourage the story from each character, right? And uh, but if you go like, oh, didn't you kill that? Uh, you know, that farrier last winter. What was that about? <laughs> it's like, well, okay. If you go like, uh, tell us of uh, tell us of. Um, the, the great dispute that you had with the farrier that led to his untimely death, you know? <laughs> and the framing of it kind of gives you that that distance, I think. You know, those two things combined where the things that, that you've said you've matter and are written down in front of you are protected and the kind of distance, some of the ritual phrases distancing it. There's also, I wanted to point out, there's the, um, it, it's in the advanced section, but there are the, um, the rituals. And one of them, the ritual of the outlier, so we have this this constraint here that says, I cannot tell you what your character is thinking or feeling. And that's great. And that's perfect. But then we also have a problem that shows up, which is I may narrate how characters react to your character in a way that doesn't fit how you see that, right? Like if you see oh. your character as a wonderful, beautiful character that everyone loves, and then oh. I spend the whole time un, un, um, yeah. undercutting that. So there's this, uh, the ritual of the outlier that allows you to say that's not what's happening here. That's like, that's not how I envision my character and gives you a chance to, uh, those rituals are all just ways of engaging a conversation. I use this sort of metaphor over and over again, where the game isn't necessarily there to help you uh, in the same way that the rules to basketball are not there to let you score points <laughs> they're there to make the scoring of points interesting the key thing that i see in the hacks is that the perilous phase and the rogues phase is essentially unchanged right that that is consistent i i see through all the hacks i think the tones are also the two tones are consistent but quite often that kind of like feels a bit forced and what's interesting to me is that the hacks almost always vary in the discovery phase and it's it's interesting to me because the it's essentially the discovery phase is actually the driver of mm -hmm. Sword of Master and all these games, and that's why people essentially devote a lot of attention to whatever yeah, they're yeah. calling the equivalent of discovery phase, which is essentially that something that changes changes the character's perception of the world happens in the discovery phase, and then we have to go back around the loop to explore what the consequences of of that right, are. Right, right. 
on the outside surface, the shell of the discovery game uh, or the discovery phase is that it's just, oh, okay, we learn more about the world. But underneath it is, this is how we're going to contextualize our story. This is how we're going to make sense of what just happened and what will inform what happens from here on out. And that's why when you discover something in the rogues phase, it's different than when you discover it in the, the discovery phase, right? Like, so I feel like the rogues phase doesn't get changed a lot because it's just so simple. If we're going to map it into Apocalypse World terms again, it, it's, you know, it's the thing about being a fan of the characters, right? It's actually not the perilous phase where you're getting closure. It's actually the rogues phase where bad guys are marched off to prison and, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> treasures are won and damsels wooed and, you know, princes, <laughs> yeah. princes won from dragons and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's the unambiguous kind of victory moment. When I run it, uh, this is just maybe just anecdotal evidence, but I think uh, whenever we reach the end game, I almost always go to the rogues phase because it's just the clearest way to clean up. I think I've done quite a few in the perilous phase as well. I don't, I cannot even recall one that I've done in the discovery phase, although I wouldn't say mm. that it was impossible. I just think that it's, it's more difficult. It's always fun when you, you're in a rogues phase and you're at the end of the game and you're like, oh, okay, I know the, the perfect demand to sum up this whole story. And then they roll a stymie, right? Like, <laughs> then it's like, show us how you uh, free us from the eternal, you know, dungeon of the, the Lich Lord. And you roll a stymie and it's like, oh, oh, this is the story of how we've, we're entombed forever in the eternal <laughs> of, the, of the Lich Lord. Okay. All right. How did you go about? Because the we understand the two tones came from Monkey Dome, but right. I'm assuming that the 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 scene um, the phases didn't. No, Monkey Dome was a perilous phase throughout. So how? What was the order in which you came up with those phases? The Rogues phase was the first solidified. It was really easy. It, I mean, it's if you ever played the Adventures of Baron Munchausen, it's stolen wholeheartedly from that game where you in that game it's more of like brags you know you're, you're like tell us about the time you defeated the emperor's army uh with one hand and one leg tied behind your back you know that kind of thing but the discovery phase took forever to nail down partly because what it does is it leaves you hanging it says all right now give us something in the beginning there wasn't this back and forth with the the over player it was just now do it and then eventually nail down how to, to to work with the overplayer with it and one version of it ends up in the game in the lore phase i definitely spent the most time working on that discovery phase and i spend the most time when i run the game trying to make people okay with it too like it is it is i think the toughest of the um the three phases to in, which is weird because I think the perilous phase is the one with the most... It's the hardest to get your head around. And when people grasp it, it's amazing because yeah. nobody will put their character in greater danger than their own player. Right. <laughs> says, right, the scene opens, you are dangling off a rope bridge and you have an ogre above you trying to take your head off. You go, hey, whoa, 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 wait a minute. But if the, <laughs> the player themselves says, hey, okay, right, the scene starts, I'm dangling off this rope bridge. <laughs> I'm about to cut my head off. You know, is it, they, mm. they, they will push it so much further because they feel comfortable. They, can, mm. they decide when to roll those dice and when the, the tide turns. But the, the distinction between, for me, between that, once you've got your head around that perilous phase and the rogues phase versus the discovery phase is that the discovery phase seems to be the one that 
is most replacing the, the games master. Mm. Right. So the other player is not the games master. The other player is, 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 a, is, is definitely a player. But we know because other players are basically stepping into that role of the games master in the rogues phase, like show me this, show me this other thing. And then in the perilous phase, you've got your head around it. Okay, I'm just going to make it worse for myself. It's right. when you hit that discovery phase, it's like, okay, this is the point where I'm going to wait to go, okay, GM, where's our next quest? Where's the buried treasure? Where's the big bad, whatever? And actually, oh, wait, we don't have a GM. We have this <laughs> yeah. mechanic to get us there. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, if, I, if I'm being the least amount of charitable to myself, I, I, it was designed so that I could run this at conventions over and over without... <laughs> having to to deal with the creative load of of coming up with uh what every single story is about um but that's it i mean the the discovery yeah. phase is the bit where the game expands outwards yeah the rogues phase and the perilous phase are all about digging deeper in the mm -hmm. discovery phase expands out mm. yeah i think it's a great way to describe it it's one that, it's interesting i've been looking at um the kind of black hack subgenre Mm -hmm. games at the moment and one of the biggest things i kind of miss in all those rules i like i like a lot of other things they do with the, the rule systems and kind of creating a similar kind of swords and sorcery or weird fantasy vibe but it is still just like there's nothing there like the discovery phase to say okay so creation is a joint activity it's like so gm create a great great adventure with weird and wonderful monsters and a reason why this all right. exists you know and why we're invested in it. For me, it's like all that kind of progressive OSR stuff. If they could take one thing, it's to understand the discovery fate from Swords Without Master and apply it to all their games, you know? Well, it's, I mean, it, it definitely has this, it helps the overplayer feel the same sense of wonder that uh, you would hope that the players feel, right? Like that, and you definitely, you know, as you're GMing old games, or old games, such a such a I minefield say, to describe a game. Classical game. <laughs> that, that sense of wonder hits you when you're designing the adventure often. And yeah, it definitely comes up when something meshes with what the players are doing in the game with what you're doing and suddenly, ooh. So, I mean, it does happen. I'm not, you know, the discovery phase was uh, definitely an attempt to, to give the overplayer the chance to go, oh, I didn't know that this uh, castle could just uproot and run. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Let's yeah. uh, let's find out uh, wh where where that goes, and that's why the discovery phase ends when the overplayer says it ends. Right? It's it's mm. when the overplayer has that aha moment. I want to talk about stymies as well. It was something I struggled with in terms of presentation because when the dice are first introduced, we talk about them saying that listen, these are not describing success or failure. These are about right. the tone in which the action is completed, and if that tone. And that tone is irrespective of actual success or failure because you can succeed or fail in a jovial way and you can uh, succeed or fail in a, in a glum way. Right. But then you, you read two pages on and then you actually discover that, yeah, actually the dice in a one, two or three, actually you do have a failure at that point. Yeah, but a world expansive one, I think, is the key thing. I think that it's definitely a legit criticism of the game and one that has been told to me at conventions at a particular instance where somebody was like, but this is failure. 
Just call it failure. <laughs> the interesting thing that as a comment that kind of works on both levels, right? Yeah, About yeah. what's happening in the game and of the design. Yeah, yeah this, exactly. It's just unremitting failure. So what what's happening there? Why I'm I'm playing that sort of coy game. First of all, I want to empower people to have their characters fail on their own. Just decide, this is it. This is my failure moment. Because I've always read the Stymies as being, like I said, like world expansive. Like yeah. the thing was going to work until a new set of circumstances were revealed. The way I read it is that some some new depth of the world is revealed. So if, if your character fails on their own accord, you can decide to make that happen. Mm. But if they fail because something in the outside world has changed the situation, then the audience doesn't go, look at that incompetent character. Mm. They go, oh no, what's happening now? You know, mm. and that's, that's definitely what you're getting at there. Like that's one of the reasons why it's uh, the escalations built into there. I wanted to give plenty of room to avoid the situation where the dice tell you your character is incompetent. That's a lot of the structure built around the stymie there. What is the deal with morals? I mean, why bring out morals as a separate thing to mysteries, right. I guess? Historically, the moral of the three threads of the moral, the motif, and the mystery, the the moral is the one that was in Monkey Dome. Monkey Dome called them lessons, and it was based on uh, that specific moment in Thunderdome where Mad Max uh, defeats um, Blaster, Blaster. Yeah. and and then it's revealed that Mad Max was the villain after all for that sort of stylist story. Regret over what you've done is, is a, a good thing to have happen. And then when it came time for me to you know, find what I was going to take out of Monkey Dome and put into this sword and sorcery situation. The morals definitely, when I hit upon the fact that you could defy them, right? You could, the the lesson, never step aboard an ironclad uh, airship without your parents' permission. You can then at the end, step aboard an ironclad airship without your parents' permission and say, ha, I'm never going to learn this. Not for your lessons, gods. <laughs> I am um, my own man. Yeah. <laughs> then I was like, okay, this is great. This this absolutely fits. Uh, and because the tales that I enjoy in Sword of Sorcery are not always moral tales, then that gave us room to have these things. Again, I think of like Jack Vance characters who are a moral lot, and you just see them get in trouble over and over again. And then they're like, I'm not going to learn that lesson. And you're like, aha, you have a very tough future ahead of you. The mystery was added later when, I mean, I saw that there was a room there in the same roles that now inhabit mysteries. It could have just been a moral that went along with your stymie. I think that it's a perfectly functional game if you do that. But I, I wanted to create those moments where the game says, no, the world is weirder than you think. Also, on top of it, it is, in fact, still a stymie. So it does that thing where uh, that world expanding thing. So it says the world is weirder than you think. And that is going to uh, change how we're going to, to deal with all this. Uh, so, so motifs. When we were talking about swords in our episode, is it one of the things we? One of, I guess, the criticism we mentioned about it was that when somebody at the table mentions something cool, your first instinct is not necessarily to write it, write it down on yeah. a scrap of paper in the middle of the table. I imagine this has probably happened to you in your testing, because you put so explicitly in the rulebook to say. For your first few adventures, maybe pause after each phase to ask yeah. if it should be recorded as a note. I understand that that a story is a proper story because it involves reincorporation. Otherwise, it's just a series of events. 
Right. Talk us through your thinking with how Moti, how what your intention was with with just how the Motis would work. Why you picked three lots of three? Why you picked this idea of echoing from the first the first slip to the second slip, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The original idea of the motifs came from Nathan Paoletta's game Annalise. Somebody would come up with something in the fiction, and you're like, "That's really neat. I'm going to write that down, and I'm going to claim it so that." we can do something with it later on. And that idea was very powerful to me. That was, um, I enjoyed the process alone, just writing it down and saying, yes, we're going to make sure this happens again. But also it had this subtle effect. If you erase all the mechanical bits about it, just having the players say, that's good. We need more of that was really effective. And a lot of what goes into swords is that sort of ritualization with enough mechanical weight behind it to kind of force you to do that kind of ritualization, right? Like we were talking about the dice before, where there's a uh, value in rolling dice at certain moments, even if those dice don't tell you anything at all. Just saying, this is the moment when the dice roll. This is a this is an important beat. Everyone's going to take a look because dice are being rolled or dice are being passed or, you know. So... The deal with the motif is that it's a moment where we stop and say, yeah, that's that was awesome. That's good. It's a moment of praise for your fellow players, which is always fun. But it's also a moment where we say, I want to see more of this in this particular story. And that's where the echo comes from, because I, I didn't want that to be sort of a toothless request, right? Like I didn't want people to just say, I'd like to see more of this. I wanted people to increase the odds that you're going to see more of this. And that's the the echo where you you had to find some way to bring it about. The three is, I mean, partly because three is an easy number to remember. I think also the switching of the motif cards becomes in, in several of the like the the smaller spin-off games that I have made or are making that have the uh, motifs in it, it when you fill out a motif card, something in the fiction is going to change just the same way that at the end of a swords game, you you go into the end game when you fill out your third one. Uh, I have some games that I'm working on now that uh, are meant to be played. Uh, they're swords st- stripped down and they're meant to be played in a half hour, so much so that they're timed. So if you if you don't fill out a motif card by this time, something happens. And if you don't fill out a motif card by this time, uh, something else happens. It's a natural breaking moment in the fiction, even if we don't have a breaking moment in the fiction itself, right? If you think about it as if you're reading a book and you're in the middle of a battle, and then there's that, you know, there's a chapter break, and the next chapter can start off right where you were in the middle of the battle and keep going. But because of that chapter break, it's just kind of a natural moment that is not necessarily expressible in how the tale or or what's happening in the tale itself. There's a a little bit of fiddliness with the end game around motifs, about picking out elements uh, within the And I felt like morals, you've already described it, it's really easy to hit. It's either to say, I'm a different person because of what I've learned, or actually, uh, you know, hell with it this is like i'm affirming who i am and i am the person who does this this thing motif reincorporation feels like it should be simply just using the motif as uh, inspiration for a riff Mm -hmm. uh in the the narration 
you know, because effectively it replaces a dice roll, right? So yeah. the player already in the metagame declares that they're reincorporating the motif. So then kind of blind, binding the elements together feels... I, I, I mean, I'd, I'd be interested in understanding what you were trying to get at there. It's a desire to have something new come out of it. I, like, I don't think it would be shattering to the game if you just said, just echo one of the elements on, on the Ooh. motif like we've already done or yeah. something like that. I just want it like a little bit more of a capper. Okay, so a couple things that are happening here. Number one, um, the motif is the only one that you're guaranteed to have at the end of the story, right? You you can play the game and end up without a mystery uh, and more rarely without a moral, but you can't reach the end of the game without three motif cards on the table. Mm. And the way the game is, you know, if you're supposed to play with three to four players and an over player, uh, then you have the motifs guarantee that you have enough stuff on the table for all but one of you to reincorporate, which is what you need. I guess what I wanted there was just a moment where people were taking a little time with the ending there. One of the instincts that people have at the end of a swords game is that they will do what everything that they do to, to end it, but they're just going to depend on an epilogue to just, you know, sum it all up and be done. And I don't, particularly want that to happen i like the epilogue rule where if it, if it didn't make sense or if you felt like you needed a little bit more than have someone roll it i knew that i could rely on it but i had hoped that i could didn't ever need it and hoped that i you know could make the game end without the epilogue and in the end i just put it in there because uh it's better to just have people be able to say okay and then here's how the story ends if they don't quite hit it with the motif i feel the motif resolution is mm -hmm. really resolving the story whereas the yeah. epilogue is resolving questions about the character yeah. yeah and it's it's kind of interesting to hear you say that like in your ideal both things can be wrapped up at the same time and i think that that's one of the areas that i feel a little bit of i would really like to play more of this game in the long forms that we did where we would play one session and then we get together for the next one and then we would sit down and maybe spend a half hour just kind of going over let's make this our um empire strikes back let's let's make sure this ends on a sad note and let's make yeah. sure uh or you know a tragic note and mm. leaves us open for whatever mm. the third one is and and um or uh, this thing that we encountered two sessions ago, like, I really want to see this come up. Or when I made my character, I said that they were being hunted by a demon and we still haven't seen the demon yet. So I'm going to make sure I take the, the foe and then somebody else comes up with another, like, oh, and I would love to fight this demon at this, mm. at the top of a volcano. So here, I'm going to make that the uh, locus for my character and we'll, We'll work together and make that happen. So is it that master? Obviously, it's been out there for, for several years now, mm -hmm. and you never intended it to be, to be the finished version. Can you give us one change that you will definitely be making from the, the previously published version before it, it finally goes out? 
I'll definitely be adding a lot of different ways to explain how the game works. I am going to include uh, Invisible Empire is one that's going to be in there and uh, a couple other games that just focus on each of the phases. I will have a playthrough. And actually, I've had that one written for quite a while. So In that case, you can't change the rules too much. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like you're pretty happy with the rules. It's actually like trying to invoke the mindset in which they are played. Yeah. Rather than the rules themselves that you're unhappy with. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, I'm there's the danger where if you try to change the rules and you have a set that's that's working, you could change something and then not realize the implications of that change on the rest of it. And but I do think when it comes time to putting out the the larger book, I will be going through it with a with the fine tooth comb, if you will, and finding ways to uh, smooth over some of the edges that uh, I you know I definitely see that that are there.